In this podcast series presented by Boss, we journey into the lives of inspiring creators, artists, and athletes, unearthing the pivotal moments that shape them into the unique bosses and leaders that they are today. Join us as we go behind the boss. In this episode, we meet Ariane Phillips. The American creative works across all forms of the arts, from theatre and film to music and opera. Phillips has been nominated for Oscars and BAFTAs for her outstanding costume design in blockbuster films, not to mention she's worked closely with artists like Madonna on music videos and album covers. We sit down with Phillips to talk all things career, creativity and community. Ariane, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Raven. I'm so thrilled to be here talking to you. I can't wait to get into this. Let's jump right in. Tell me a bit about your childhood and how you came to be where you are today. Well, I guess in the overview, I was raised by two incredible parents who are still together. Mm -hmm. They're about to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary. I I would say my parents are bohemians. They're artists. They're both writers which is why I'm so happy and excited to be sitting with you today. (laughs) They had me quite young Mm. in the 60s, and they were really part of a, I guess, a generation that was trying to make a change from the way that they were raised in the 50s. So it was just a big adventure. We traveled a lot. We lived in communal atmospheres. Mm. There are a lot of artists and writers around us at all times, and and the arts were really encouraged. Um, My father's also a musician on top of being a writer, and he was a, a teacher and an educator. So there was a lot of stimulation. My parents to this day are some of the most like forward-thinking, modern people ever. I mean, I feel a bit like I'm a bit old-fashioned compared yeah. to them. There is a, a level at which if you are of their generation and you fought for this, you've had to fight to be liberal in some way, whereas we are being brought up by liberal people, it's less of a struggle for us to live liberal Absolutely. lives, which is a real privilege. You know, when adolescence hit, it's like, how can I rebel? Where's yes. the rebellion? Yeah. So I think actually how I rebelled is embodied in the, the adult that I become. You know, the thing is, it's like my parents, while they they deprived my sister and I of television, mm. that's how we looked at it, they actually raised us in a, a pop culture movement. Mm. So while I craved kind of commercial pop culture. In my day, it was like the Brady Bunch and the Partridge Family. They actually, and I was like obsessed with rock stars. We didn't have rock and roll in the house Mm. and we didn't have television. And those were the two things I pursued. So I had a bedroom (laughs) at 14 that was plastered with posters of like Robert Plant Mm. and like, you know, every, until until punk rock came around. Then, Then that changed. But that was my rebellion, was just kind of the pursuit of kind of adolescent pop culture. I think that's quite normal that you pursue something outside of what your parents oh, yeah. are prescribing to you. Did anyone give you good advice in your kind of formative years that stayed with you? For sure, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that my father and mother always said was, be your own boss. Mm. Be your own boss, which is actually 
completely fitting for, for what we're talking <laughs> what about. What do you mean on the yes, boss podcast? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but that is yeah. like the mantra that don't work for the man, yeah. quote unquote. And, you know, my father was an English teacher and he worked within the system, the educational yeah. system. And it was frustrating for him. He was teaching in the late 60s and early 70s in Oakland, California, in the middle of the Vietnam War, Black Panthers, and he was an activist, and he was really, and he got very involved with his students because he was young. And so the whole thing of questioning authority, especially that generation, was really a lot of the modeling that I got as a kid. So along with that, it was don't work for the man. And he was, you know, be your own boss, you know, know, be creative, Mm -hmm. and my parents allowed me to really pursue what felt like what I really wanted to do authentically. So you had like a bedrock of Fellini double bills. I sure did. And then along came punk. I mean, I'm assuming that was a big inspiration for you. Massive. I mean, incredible. I, I, you know, what happened for me is that it was the thing that really, I think, triggered something deep, deep down was, you know, I had this childhood full of artistic, I had so much access to art in every form, Mm. from literature to dance to theater to film. And then, as I said, I was like obsessed with pop culture. And then punk rock came around. And that really was, it came at at just the right time for me because I really was listening to kind of traditional male-dominated rock and roll. And all of a sudden, punk came around, and you had, like, polystyrene and the slits and the au pairs and the raincoats and all these... (laughs) Susie Sue, all these amazing women who were um, expressing themselves in this this way of empowerment. And, you know, Lena Lovitch and Chrissy Hine and, Mm. and this really, you know moved me in a in a deep way and all of that was coming out of London Mm. and for me London was so unique and it's in London you have street culture especially at that time Mm. that was expressed you know through kind of it was very tribal like you were a new romantic or you were a punk or you know that you were a teddy or rock you know all these these different genres of of style, really, and music. And I always love the convergence of street culture and music. Mm. And that's what magazines like The Blitz mm-hmm. and ID and The Face mm-hmm. were like my Bibles yeah. of what I <laughs> felt spoke to me and was relevant at a yeah. deep level. Now, being you know a young girl, like I was born in New York, but raised in Northern California. So Getting a hold of those magazines when I was 14, 15, 16 was impossible. Mm. We'd get NME or ID or The Blitz, which was a precursor to ID magazine in the face. And we'd get those from the local record shop. But we'd get them and they'd be like three months old or four months old. You know, there was no internet then. So I would scour those pages for the music and the style and everything. So I really... and I. I saved all my money and I would buy, I was quite competitive with my friends. I was really into British pop music. Mm -hmm. So 
at this pool. I lived <laughs> like in a, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it wasn't on the radio at all. No, it wasn't on the it, radio. You're just painting a picture of such a magical time where it's like, I can't imagine not knowing. Like when you Rihanna steps out and we see what she's wearing immediately. And it's like, imagine waiting three months to, to just get your update of what's going on. Oh, it's it's, impossible. And And you're not seeing everything. You're not seeing. So you also have to make it up, right? Mm. You have to figure it out just in terms of like, you know, creating that look for yourself. I was obsessed uh, personally, Mm. style wise, with Bananarama's look and the specials. (laughs) And also, I could say a little Robert Smith in there from The Cure. So I'd be like doing my hair like that, you know, I have a picture cut out from a magazine on my on my mirror and you know it was really unusual in, mm. in where I was growing up and there was a small group of us that were really into like style and music in that way yeah. you know at that time most of the kids had long hair and were still hippies so yeah. if you cut your hair or dyed your hair they just called you a punk and threw things at you at school. Fun. So so <laughs> it, it really gave you me a sense of purpose and almost like theatrical self-righteousness yeah. in terms of like figuring out, you know, that that time at, you know, between 14 and 17, you're trying to figure out who you are anyway yeah. in your relationship to the world. So it was really empowering. And I became a complete Anglophile and I became obsessed I lived in a college town I, yeah. I, and in high school. So there was this really cool record shop and the girls that worked there were also really cool. They were yeah. all in bands. And I would buy <laughs> these singles and EPs that were album size, final album size, oh, yeah. based on the cover art. Yeah. And that's how I bought like my first Cocteau twins. Mm-hmm. And you know, nobody knew who they were, but the album cover was so cool. Yeah. And that was, you know, it was treasure hunt, really. Yeah, but I love that idea of you coming of age and not only trying on clothes to see how it feels, but also like trying on music. Just, Absolutely. oh, that looks nice. I'll see what it sounds like. Absolutely. And and by the way, those clothes were not accessible. We were going to <laughs> we were going to the thrift stores and like yeah. cutting the necks out of things and dyeing them and stuff. So it was a very DIY situation. And have you always loved clothes? I have, I have, because, you know, my family moved around all the time, so mm-hmm. I was often the new kid in school. I think mm-hmm. I went to eight schools before high school, um, so, so sometimes two schools a year. Yeah. So clothes were either my way to fit in and not stand out or to later on as I started to kind of figure out who I wanted to be or how I wanted the world to see me, clothes became my kind of you know, how I express my identity. And that is directly, if we skip over the kind of the fashion and the music part direct to my job as a costume designer, Mm. the beautiful thing about being a costume designer is the costumes help create character, which all are about informing the identity of that character, which in turn is part of the storytelling process. Mm. So the collaboration that I get to do in advance with the director and then with the actor is is really about dissecting that process. Mm. And I believe that my childhood experience of being kind of the new kid all the time and then kind of finding my way through being a misfit and an outsider yeah. that I felt, like I think most kids feel, and, and I really leaned into that. Mm. Um, I, you know, created this obsessive desire to, you know, learn everything I could about London pop culture. And, and British pop culture. Yeah. And um, so that really helped me 
find myself because we were constantly moving and I always felt like I was blending in as a new kid to every place. And then to the point of where I finally hit that point in adolescence where I could see who I wanted to be or who I identified with in the pages of these these magazines. And it wasn't fashion magazines at the time. It was mostly music magazines. Enemy, Blitz, ID, and The Face. And the great thing about ID and The Face is that it was punk rock. And it was like, you know, I can think about Jean-Baptiste Mondino and Mm. and Mario Testino, who actually shot for the ID in those years, that those images really inspired me. Yeah, I can imagine. I think you just paint this lovely picture of adolescence, which is universal of like both wanting to fit in and stand out. And you just manage that. Most people were just working that out through their adolescence. Oh, it's totally angst-filled right there. <laughs> I mean, like Shoot anything. Gazing. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, music as a teenager yeah. is a thing that gives you, like, a sense of self. I mean, think yeah. about, like, putting those headphones on as a kid and, like, identifying with the song that makes you strong when like your parent you're fighting like arguing with your parents or you're <laughs> yeah. you know there's a bully at school and then you you become empowered by the music you listen to I mean I think that's got to be pretty universal and how we are you know when you find the power and the desire with yeah. with music and and the music that was changing at that time in the late 70s Early 80s, like the Slits and all these bands Mm. really informed me. And there's a New York band, two New York all-girl bands, one called ESG, Mm -hmm. which I recommend everyone check them out. I think they're even on Spotify now. And they're these three really cool girls from the Bronx who were produced by English producers. And it's amazing. And also the Bush Tetras, which was a three-piece all-girl band, too. And um, they're just the coolest. Yeah. From there, did you gradually move into costume design or was there a, like a did you pivot into something no I didn't I uh, my dream you know around this time MTV was born mm. or maybe a little bit before but um seeing as we didn't have a TV I didn't yeah. have exact <laughs> access to it but <laughs> I became you're the Fellini marathon exactly mom and dad we just watch MTV <laughs> yeah. um MTV became my you know music videos mm. for me were all of a sudden like the end goal. Yeah. I had thought, you know, for years my Halloween costumes were princesses. Then I graduated to witches. Yeah. And then I thought I'd be an actress. Yeah. Like all little girls. And I was really into theater as a kid. Yeah. And then MTV came around. I actually went to some serious acting classes yeah. when I was a teenager yeah. in a proper conservatory in San Francisco. And I realized really quickly I it wasn't for, it wasn't for me. I, it not only wasn't for me, I don't think I was for it. Cool. Like, I don't gotcha. think, I just don't <laughs> think I had the, t- I definitely didn't have the talent. But I, I was really still attracted to the process. And then I, I remember having kind of like a eureka moment of like watching MTV. Like, there's two kinds of music videos. Mm-hmm. There's typical music video where you see an artist performing a song mm-hmm. and they look sexy and hot and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know it's super exciting <laughs> to imagine, like, my 14-year-old self seeing a music video for the yeah. first first time or, you know, kind of like those those music films that you'd see, like, Song Remains the Same or something like that. Yeah. And then, then there are music videos where they're 
acting out the song. Mm -hmm. So narrative. So you have all the players in the song. My lucky star, literally, was the fact that I moved to New York kind of in the middle of my college career. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend at the time, sister, came to visit And she had gone to high school with Lenny Kravitz. Mm -hmm. And Lenny Kravitz and I met kind of like the first six months I moved to New York. Mm. And it was, at the time, he was gigging as a drummer for other bands and touring around. And we became fast friends. And as kids in New York, he was like, you know, when I make my record, you'll be my stylist. And, you know, we're kind of like both trying to figure it out. And he went away for a while. I think he went to California and he was on tour and stuff. And he came back to New York and he's like, I'm going to record my own record Mm -hmm. and you can be my stylist. And so having the experience of doing videos with him, Mm -hmm. and I had been working a little bit as an assistant in videos, but the first video that I did with him that was narrative was Mr. Cab Driver off Mm -hmm. his first record. And I remember just being so... I remember having to dress a cab driver like a cab driver. Yeah. I was like, how do you identify what a cab driver is? It's an archetype. It's a stereotype without him having dialogue. And It's not just dressing people in a way that you think that they look good. It's like, what's the story? Yeah, who is this person? Yeah, and who were they before? And yeah. what's their backstory? And kind of creating like... You know, in acting school, I learned about creating backstory, yep. like for characters, <laughs> like in scene study. Yeah. So I apply that to costume design all the time. Yeah. So that gives you kind of gravitas and like a foundation to have meaning. Yeah. I think I've always wanted to have meaning behind my ideas. So creating that for myself. Yeah. So that I have a leg to stand on if I have to, like, go to fashion court or something. <laughs> yeah, but what, so was that when you were styling with Lenny Kravitz? Was that when you were like, I've, this is where it's at? Well, yeah, it was, like, a really privileged place to be because, first of all, he's one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. We had the same aesthetic. Yeah. He wasn't my boss. He was my friend. Yeah. And so when we were creating in the early days at the very beginning— It was just total self-expression between me and him. So there's a flow and, like, you know, our inspirations were, like, you know, the Jackson 5 cartoon mixed with, like, Earth, Wind & Fire, mixed with, like, Bob Marley's backup singers, mixed, you know, all these bits and bobs. And we spoke the same language creatively. I mean, trust me, the people at the record company wanted to get rid of me. They were just like, she's dressing him in women's clothes. Yeah. And I was. Yeah. Because in those days, like, we couldn't get anything that, that would fit him high <laughs> yeah. and tight, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. didn't have the money. So, like, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I feel like, you know, Lenny and I are very close to this day. And yeah. actually, I'm, I'm helping him out for, he has a performance coming up and I'm, I'm helping him out now. It's a long, long friendship since yeah. 1987. Yeah. Yeah, that was a real, that was super like stars aligning. Shall we talk about Madonna? Shall we talk about sure. Tom Ford? I mean, sure. we, we can, I want to just touch on some career highlights. Let's start with Madonna. One of the major turning points in my career mm was meeting Madonna, which uh, I was introduced to her through Courtney Love, who was, they're both meant to be on the cover of Rolling Stone Women in Rock Issue Mm -hmm. with Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. And Courtney at the time was quite friendly with Madonna, and she said, oh, Madonna's in between stylists, and Mm -hmm. I've recommended you. And I said, why did you do that? 
she let her get her own stylist because I thought it was about Courtney wanting the best dressed, yeah, the, the best dress, right? Like, yeah. so if I was, you know, Doing and she said to me, um, she's she's one of the most funny, witty, clever, just hilarious, and one yeah. of the most clever, witty people you ever met. So when I said when I got, I was quite cross with her in the in the phone call, and I said, you know, let let Madonna get her own stylist. Let me just focus on you. And she said. Oh, stop thinking so below the line. Yeah. And that made me laugh because the term below the line mm-hmm. is referencing an archaic term in the film industry. Above the line are actors, writers, directors, producers who all own IP, intellectual property, make yeah. royalties on film. Yeah. Everyone below the line is from the cinematographer, production designer, set designer, yeah. uh, costume designer, down to the caterer. And we're work for hire. Yeah. So it is an archaic term. Yeah. But it made me laugh because she basically was saying, have more confidence in yourself. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily coming from that place. I was coming from a practical place of like, oh, my God, it's going to be a fight over a dress. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Best. So you were anyway. thinking about the job, not yeah, your career. Yeah. You're not your career. Self-esteem. Right. Yeah. But yeah. but she was right in a way, you know, like pull up and, and like think high of yourself. So. At any rate, she ended. I said no. She ended up sending my. In those days, we had hardbound portfolios. She yeah. sent my portfolio to Madonna, and Madonna booked me. And and the rest is history. I mean, that's when I met her, and um, she was just about to release Ray Light album. Yeah. So she booked me for the Frozen video, which yeah. we shot. Oh, which man. we shot next. That was what my first video with her. It's beautiful. And it's it, one of the like haunting ones, right? Yeah. To give you. A little bit of self-doubt. I have the best self-doubt story. So did you have self-doubt as you were working more and more with her? Did it sort of get better? The self-doubt was yeah. really in the beginning mm-hmm. because I had a perception of who she was based mm-hmm. on I was a, a fan. I, I'd seen everything she'd ever done. Yeah, she's pretty well established by yeah, 97. Yeah, yeah, 97, yeah. very well established. And I never imagined that we would have anything in common or that I would be her taste or... Maybe necessarily she'd be mine. So um, I just didn't know if there'd be chemistry there. I always kind of thought of myself as kind of more rock and roll, kind of more hardcore. Yeah. From the moment I met her at the photo shoot, I just, we got along straight away and Mm. I quite liked her. She's very just normal and friendly and smart, Mm. very smart. And and I, I really, really liked her. So straight after that, she invited me. They asked me if I would uh, work with her on the Frozen video. Mm -hmm. She was in New York at the time. We had done the photo shoot in L.A., and this was like a month later. They asked me to travel to New York to have a meeting with her. I'll never forget. I found out when I got to New York that Jean-Paul Gaultier was going to be at that meeting as Mm -hmm. well. And I literally wanted to get on the plane and go home because Jean-Paul Gaultier was the most influential fashion designer for me. Yeah. And the work that Jean-Paul Gaultier and Madonna did together I mean, was, it's beyond it's iconic. It's words. Yeah, it's not iconic. It doesn't even do it justice. No, it's, it's, so, it's, it's something other. It's, it's culturally just, relevant. Yeah. Like, it's on the timeline of, like, you know, and, and also just... I just so admired them both as artists and the idea of yeah. it. So I'll never forget, I was at a hotel that was downtown. She lived uptown at the time. I'm walking up the street at that time. I think it was Broadway on the Upper West Side. And I'm looking at my reflection in the windows as I'm walking, you know, as you do when you're yeah. walking 
uh, on the streets of New York. And I just started to go down a really bad rabbit hole of I am not worthy. Like, I am going to have this meeting. Like, why does she need me? So here I was going to a meeting with Madonna to hear the music for the first time and also to talk with Jean-Paul Gaultier about the costume. So... So my self-doubt was that, vibrating in my chair hearing this story. Yeah. And I was I would say as far as self-doubt goes, that yeah. was like ground zero. Like yeah. literally ground zero. Um you know, I went to her apartment and you know, I met Jean-Paul Gaultier who is I don't know if you've ever met him. No. He's the most gregarious, <laughs> yes. warm, <laughs> hilarious, yeah. lovely human being. Yeah. And Madonna, and obviously they had had a long relationship, we're good friends, and there we are with a cup of tea. We listened to her music, which is always very awkward to listen to of an course, artist's music when, when they're right sitting there. Yeah. It's just happened to me a few times. Yeah. It's like, what do you do? Do you tap your foot, like, or anything? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Bopping to Frozen. I know, like, I'm feeling totally awkward, right? Yeah. I mean, awkward is the word. Like, yeah. I just felt awkward and out of my element. Yeah. You know, Jean, Jean-Paul had, like, photos from the collection, and I thought I'd just take a listening stance, Yeah, you know, out of respect for them. And, and so they're talking—Madonna's talking about looks from the collection, the pictures that he had just had the show and yeah. that she thought would be good. And he thought, and they're talking, and I'm listening, and everything's beautiful. And then she's like, well, what do you think? I have to say, <laughs> someone asked my opinion. Unfortunately, yeah. they're going to get it. Yes. <laughs> What did you say? <laughs> well, it was just, it was hilarious. Well, everything was beautiful. You know, we were just talking about the video and what the costume needed to, to do for the video. Yeah. And so Jean-Paul had started drawing, like, quick little fashion sketch about a version of one of the dresses, of the dresses she liked. Yeah. And then he literally was like, well, what do you think? And I offered an opinion. And then he's like, here, just draw it. And literally had me draw over his drawing. Wow. I literally, it was like an out-of-body experience. I remember my hand was shaking. So anyway. (laughs) I wish I'd been there being like, (laughs) you've absolutely got this in bucket loads. But I can hear from the way you're telling the story, it's like the second they were talking about the narrative, you were like, oh, well. Yeah. The narrative totally. should look like this. Totally. Just Absolutely. in. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, it sounds cliche, but mm. if you trust the process, and I am confident about my point of view. Yeah. So that kicks in, yeah. you know, and you just have to kind of go with it. But that was an extraordinary experience and a turning point for me. And I would say that my self-doubt and my lack of confidence really kind of evaporated in terms of a relationship with Madonna after that point. The thing that's so brilliant about Madonna is that she has a lot. I could say the same thing about Tom Ford and Quentin Tarantino. They're all very similar in that they all have very strong point of view, Mm -hmm. very specific aesthetics, and they're very exacting about what they like, what their point of view is, what they're interested in. But they expect you, all three of them, expect you to bring your idea to the table. So if you can't bring it, like Quentin said this to me, you know, Quentin is known for his very detailed scripts, Mm. which are his script for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was incredible. It read like a novel. Lots and lots of character development and and details from the scenery to the costumes. And I'm sure you can appreciate that because most scripts are like skeletons, right? There's not, it's a lot of camera moves, but not a lot of description in terms of, of creating visuals. Yeah. So Quentin 
said to me in our first meeting, because the rumors are crazy about him, and so many people told me, oh, you know, you have, Quentin's very exacting, you have to do exactly da 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 So I wanted to make sure that if I was going to work with him, mm. that he would be interested in my ideas. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're just uh, executing for someone. Yeah, and I think those kind of very alpha certain personalities, I think they actually appreciate you saying, I'm certain about this other thing that's not necessarily what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I think they respect that more than lots of people saying yes to them all the time. For sure, (laughs) exactly, yeah, because it's tiresome, right? Yeah. And Quentin said to me in that meeting, that first meeting, was like, you know, if I've written that it's a grey jacket, I will want to see a grey jacket, but I welcome you to bring your ideas. Yeah. And that is all I need, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. What kind of personality traits do you think have got you to where you are today? I think like being flexible mm. and being curious. Like mm. the thing I say about my work is like being a costume designer is I always say it's like being a people detective. Mm. So being able to be curious about stories and people and listening you know I do a lot of talking obviously so I have so I think being a good listener being a good listener and being agile and flexible in terms of collaboration because everything I do as a costume designer and as a stylist and even in terms of charity and advocacy work mm. is all about being collaborative with other people. So being flexible and being um, being able to pivot mm. uh, creatively is really, really important because nothing is set in stone. It's yeah. always like a moving, you know, whether you're in dress rehearsal tech on a theater piece and, yeah. um, you know, there are many other elements that have to come together or on a film you know, there are times when you just have to give up your ideas and come up with new ones yeah. and be flexible about it. So was there a point in all of this kind of fulfilling, successful careering where you decided you wanted to give back? Yeah, you know, it's been ongoing, really. I mean, I think watching Madonna's philanthropy, for one, mm. you know, watching her build a pediatric surgery theater in Malawi, Africa, and building a school, and this incredible philanthropy that really, really informed me, and I admire it so much. And I would kind of reach a point where I was like, well, I don't, you know, I definitely make a decent living, but I don't make the kind of money where I can write a check and it'll move the needle, or Mm. I can build a building or a hospital or school or orphanage. And how can I infuse purpose into what I do already because I also can't take time off. I don't make that kind of money that I can take bouts of time off to to go and, you know, um, volunteer my time. And this had been swirling around for me for a while. And then the 2016 election happened. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was elected. And I was like, everything went topsy-turvy for me. And all of a sudden... There was an urgency. I think I was living in kind of a bubble of like the Obama era, uh, in general, pretty much of a bubble, you know, living this, traveling all over the world and being consumed by projects. And I started to feel like I attained the success. I own my own home. Mm. You know, I have a great partner. And the fulfillment that I felt I didn't have was giving back. So 
I just started around the election thinking, what could I do to give back and how I can come together with other people in the entertainment industry to come together to give back. So that's really when my journey started. Yeah. And it's been really fulfilling to think about every job that I take now. There's some aspect of it where I can either monetarily give back or create some advocacy around it. I mean, the greatest thing about social media is having a voice and a platform. Mm -hmm. My social media, you know, I don't have like a huge following, but I have enough of a following that I feel that I can, you know, for instance, right now, you know, with what's going on in the Ukraine, um, Mm -hmm. be able to raise money through my platform or share people's stories or advocacy. So that is really... I am super committed to that kind of purpose in everything that I do. Yeah. You have been um, touching culture for so long that Mm. the next thing will be just as memorable. Well, super nice of you to say. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank Uh, you, Raven. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. You're one of my favorite writers. (laughs) And um, it's equally thrilling for me. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Behind the Boss with your host, that's me, Raven Smith. If you want to find out more about what it takes to be a boss and the stories behind the inspirational figures of today, make sure to tune in.